The Christian community should be a place where we get strength and encouragement, but it seems that many have been hurt by ungodly and unscriptural mindsets about what our purpose is. In this lesson, we explore what it means to be in God's family and part of the important work of doing life together. All this and more as we continue our Year of the Family. I'm Philip Jackson, and this is the Married Now What Podcast. Last week we talked about the mysteries of God. Uh, I'm encouraged by uh, what Laura said about spending time and being intentional about time with your family and making the mysteries of God known. Um, that's a pretty pretty sweet thing to be able to step back and think about, okay, how, how are we like um, architecting a way to preach the gospel to our kids and doing it in little things, you know? And the, most, the, the best way to disciple your children is to be an authentic Jesus chaser yourself. Um, and also as you challenge each other, you know, as you are um, living out your faith, it is easy to get caught up in the busyness and blink and it'll, it has been six months, blink, it's been a year, two years, and um, it's easy to get lost in, in those kinds of things. So I want to encourage you to be intentional about those things. Um, some that we've mentioned a couple of weeks, a couple of weeks ago now is we're in the time of year where... Um, Thinking about 2023, pray about what that looks like for you as your family. Um, what what are the things that you want to do in your faith? Maybe maybe planning ahead, um, whether it's uh, as you as you plan your budget for next year. What money are you going to set aside for maybe specific ministry? Are you going to go on a mission trip together? Is that a way that you could sharpen each other in making the mysteries of God known? Spending intentional time doing something. Maybe it's being a sponsor at a camp or at retreat or something, um, or just being part of a ministry. Um, so what's going to happen today is that in, in Ephesians, the first three chapters, Paul's books, the first half is typically theological and the second half is practical. So as we get into chapter four, Paul is going to switch gears. He's been talking about these theological concepts, about being, um, being unified in Christ or that we have been uh, saved by grace through faith. God has done a work in our lives, and now we are His image bearers to the world, right? That, those kinds of things. Well, He's going to get into some real practical business for us this morning, and um, we're only going to be in the first six verses. There's too much in this chapter for, for us to be able to do uh, all in one morning. I started digging through this this last week, and I told Lindsay, I said, there's no way I'm going to be able to teach all 32 verses in a week, so I'll spare you that crazy drive. Um, but let's read these first six verses, then we'll dig in. Therefore I, Paul's saying, because of these, this explanation of the, of the mysteries of God, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, of all who is over all and through all and in all. In chapter 2 of Ephesians, we learn that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And, and what that text meant or means in the original language is to be pulled away from a path, a path that's been de- designated for us. Okay, So to be dead in our trespasses or in our sins means that there is almost a gravitational pull away from the way that we were designed to live. So what what Paul is talking about in these first six verses is he's talking about the mindset that God has, has redeemed us through Jesus. 
And then He invites us to come and be a part of what He's doing in the world, being on the righteous path. So think about, um, this is a really crude example, but think of the old, the old uh, story of the Pied Piper, right? You have Jesus who draws all people to Himself and we join Him on the road to heaven. And in the process, what happens is God teaches us to be a unified unit. And He teaches us to work together and to live together in harmony and to express what He has done um, in our lives. And essentially, He creates a parade for the world to see. So the mystery that He was describing in the first three chapters is now going to be put on display. So He starts off by saying, to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. In Greek, the word translated to walk comes from a root word that implies intentionally pursuing a specific path. This connects to what Paul was talking about earlier. To walk worthy means that we are intentionally thinking about the way that we are living and the way that we are, the direction of our lives. Paul tells, tells Timothy in his first letter to Timothy, he says, Pay close attention to yourself and to the teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. The idea is that we have to be intentional about the direction of our lives. Not just individually, but also corporately. So that means that whenever we're looking at things the direction of our family, we make a conscious decision. We don't just react to, to external stimuli. right? It's, an, it's important for us, not just personally, but also as we are driving the direction of all the aspects of our life, whether it's our schedule, our finances, our relationship, we need to be planners. Not that the plan is the thing that, that dictates our lives, but we need to be intentional. You know, we have to be sensitive to what the resources that God has given us and the direction of what we're doing. Um, if we live our lives and we just react to everything that happens around us, what happens is that we wake up old and stale and crusty without any relationship to God. And we look at the relationships in our life and we realize that there's no real closeness. Think about whenever you were first getting together with your spouse. More than likely, when you guys got together for a date, there was a plan right? Guys, when you asked your girl out, you probably didn't just say, hey, you want to go out with me? And then let's just see what happens. You took initiative, right? The first time you asked her out, you thought about the perfect place to take her to eat. You thought about the perfect uh, activity for you to do. Lindsay and I went to a movie. We went to the Owasso movie theater. Um, we were also, you know, 18 years old. That's okay. But you were intentional about those plans. Right? Because you had, a, you had a purpose for what you were doing. It wasn't just, all right, well, you know, if she likes me, then she likes me. And then, you know, you, make, you, uh, you might make the mistake of, hey, we're kind of having fun. You, uh, you want to get married? There was an intentional plan for how things are laid out, right? You, you, you thought about this. God is, or Paul is saying the same thing about our relationship with Christ and our lifestyle. He's saying live with purpose. We don't have to live according to a rigid plan, but we do need to have a plan. Now, some people, they wrongly think of this as living in legalism, right? But that's not what Paul's talking about here. It's not his point. He says we're supposed to walk worthy of the calling which we have been called. John Maxwell is a, is a leadership author. If you've read one John Maxwell book, you've read all of them because he uses the same stories over and over again. But he has this phrase that I really appreciate. He says... Uh, he says that we're supposed to give people a reputation to live up to. That's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, listen, walk worthy of the calling that you have been given. Walk worthy of the, of the position that God has put you in. Don't just throw away this influence that God's given you 
with each other or with your extended family or with your children or, or with your friends and your family and your community. Don't just throw this away, but be intentional about it. So consider this. How are you sharpening yourself in your personal skills? Some of us, we have professional skills that we use every day to earn a living, right? We should be sharpening ourselves in that. A lot of, a lot of industries require continued education to, to keep your certification or your licenses. How are we sharpening ourselves in our work? That's kind of a given. But have you ever thought about how to sharpen yourself in your spiritual giftedness or in the position that God has put you in with your income or with the assets that you have? Are you, are you continually improving yourself so that you can be the most, the most valuable asset to the kingdom? This is a really important thing to ask because if we're not careful, what happens is we take all of these blessings that God's given us, both tangible and spiritual, and we think that, we are, um, that we're entitled to them and that we don't have any responsibility. A very wise uh, mentor of mine years ago told me that, that we need to spend as much time sharpening ourselves as we are doing the work. Abraham Lincoln used to say that if he had six hours to chop down a tree, he'd spend the first four sharpening his axe. The idea is that the sharpest axe does the best work. If we are going to be good stewards of God's mysteries, if we're going to walk worthy of the calling, we need to be intentional about how we live. Not just in our application of God's Word, but also in how we, um, how we invest in ourselves. Legalism is trying to earn God's love and acceptance through personal performance. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He's not saying you've got to earn God's favor. The problem with legalism is that if you have to earn your salvation which Paul has just talked about in chapter 2, that we don't earn our salvation. It's given to us as a free gift. But if we have to earn our salvation, or if we've got to make sure that God loves us because of what we do, we are never going to get out of that trap. It's always going to be something that we are perpetually caught up in. If I've got to prove myself for God to accept me or love me, then, he, then that's always going to be my life. And what's going to happen is I'm going to try to earn my way into heaven. Have you ever met those people who are, who are always anxious? Always anxious and always tired. I have grown to really despise the answer, hey, how are you doing? Oh, you know, I'm just tired. I hate giving that answer to people. Or, oh, you know, I'm staying busy. Again, one of the questions that haunts me every single day, as Pastor Michael asked me once, he said, how did Jesus know when his day was over? Think about it. There was always someone else to heal, always one other lesson to teach, one other person to talk to. How did Jesus know when his day was over? And the answer is found in John 15, 5, right? He abided in the Spirit so closely that he knew when his work was done. And he was okay with saying, that's enough for today. But in order for him to have that capacity, he had to spend time learning and knowing the voice of the Spirit. We are, we are required to do the same thing. We can't expect to continually be working and working and working outside of God's design for us. Um, the legalist, has to work hard in order to stay in God's goods on God's good side. But praise God that he doesn't do that. So Paul's just finished in Ephesians chapter 2 telling us that salvation comes through grace and not by works. But his point is to order us to walk worthy of the calling. We must walk as Jesus did. Notice this. He says to walk in uh, humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. These words are significant because they lay out a path for unity and harmony for the body of Christ. Each one of us provides a supernatural response to uh, the natural degradation of relationships that comes from 
uh, our sinfulness. Okay, humility provides uh, for the proper perspective of self. Gentleness provides the means to confront the sin in others and in ourselves. Patience provides the, the strength and will to endure to the, the restoration of relationships. And bearing one another in love provides the community with the joint expectation of unity. And finally, the desire to be diligent and keep a unity of spirit provides the, the, the drive to seek reconciliation. So let's take each of these and let's talk about them. First, let's talk about humility. Humility, I love the definition of, of uh, C.S. Lewis about humility. That humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Humility is important for us. The, the, the word that's used, uh, that's translated humility here in Greek uh, comes from uh, a word that, that literally means lowliness of mind. It's a compound noun that illustrates a person who has trained their mind to put themselves last. Generally, what I have found is that the most humble people are the most secure. Why is that? It's because the most humble people know the full extent of what they have been forgiven in Christ, but they also know the, the abounding love and mercy of Jesus. They see not only how hard their life has been and the things that they have done to hurt God and to rebel against Him, but they also have seen His overwhelming mercy. And what that means is they see themselves correctly. They see themselves, as, as Psalm 139 describes them, as fearfully and wonderfully made, that they have been made on purpose for a purpose. But there's two, two kinds of false humility that we've got to watch out for. They stand in contrast to godly humility. The first is self-condemning for, for the sake of getting attention. We've met these people. How can I pray for you? Oh man, let me tell you about my life. They're not seeking any kind of a, of a resolution, any kind of spiritual wisdom. All they want is attention. And so they put themselves down. They condemn themselves. Oh, you know, I'm just, a, I'm just a, a terrible person. They're Johnny Raincloud. They're an Eeyore. That fought, that just, they just suck the life out of the room. This is false humility. The second kind of a person is one who, demands, uh, who demeans the gift of God by belittling themselves because of low self-esteem. It's making themselves small, not seeing themselves through the lens of God's grace. They have half of the picture where they see, yes, I've been forgiven of all these things. I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a dumpster fire of a person. But they're missing the context of grace. This is a person who, who has an incomplete view of themselves. You see, for us to walk in confidence and walk in unity, we need to understand that we see life through the lens of grace. We see life through the lens of mercy and forgiveness, which is why we are able to, to serve and to love other people when they offend us. If we're walking as Christ walked, that means that we're going to walk with, with lenses of grace over our eyes. So when somebody hurts us, that doesn't affect our view of ourselves. It allows us to be able to see them in their pain, right? Because hurt people hurt people, right? And if we're not able to see the hurt in other people, what it does is it robs us of the opportunity to teach them about Jesus. So humility is one of those things that comes from confidence in our value. The most godly people are the most humble because they've seen both the weight of their sinfulness and also the goodness of God. Humility is a sign of a strong spirit that has confidence in God's sovereignty and grace. A humble person is also the person that doesn't need to talk all the time because they're not seeking validation from anyone. Their validation comes from their relationship with God. 
there have been times in my life when humility was my biggest problem because I'm one of those people that is always talking. The second thing he talks about is he talks about gentleness. Gentleness comes from the Greek word, uh, which means mildness of disposition, gentleness of spirit or meekness. If you guys have ever heard the, uh, the definition of meekness, that it, meekness is power under control. Think of a horse that has been bridled and saddled which, with a rider on it. This is an example of meekness, power under control. 1,200 pounds of solid muscle, and yet it will go wherever the writer tells it to go. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul speaks about confidence that comes from being a faithful steward of God's mysteries. In chapter 4 specifically, um, he calls the church to be imitators of his conduct in a spirit of gentleness. But this word doesn't imply weakness. It doesn't imply that you are, that you are less valuable. What it means is that you see your true worth. Gentleness is also the thing that the Apostle Peter describes as the fundamental characteristic of a godly woman. can't even read that. I'm sorry. That gentleness is not something that is timid, not something that is uh, less valuable. It's a strong person. It takes a strong person to be gentle. When I was, uh, when I was teaching... Martial arts, there was, there was a, a black belt test where a young man was testing for his black belt, and it's a very arduous process. One of the things that they've got to do is, is candidates have to test. They've got to fight a freshman every two minutes. And this young guy is 18 years old, full of, um, you know, full of anticipation. He's got to sow his wild oats. So he gets in there with this older gentleman. This guy is probably in his late 60s. Big old barrel-chested guy. Um, looks like a silverback gorilla. And this young, this young kid... 18 years old, probably weighs 145 pounds, six foot tall, total bean pole. He goes in and he just like clocks this, this older gentleman, hard as he can. And the old sensei running the ring, he, he breaks him apart. And he looks at the young guy, he says, don't do that again. Start, Hajime, they go back at it. He hits him again the second time. Break, breaks him apart. Don't do that. Starts him again, comes and hits this older guy, one more time, and I, I, could, I was watching this unfold. I knew exactly what was going to happen. The old sensei turns to the old man, and he goes, okay, one time. So Hajime, they start again, and that old guy grabs that little bean pole by the, by the gi and hits him right between the eyes. And he, you know, he backs up, you know, and then you would think that that would be all the humility he would need. But youth is wasted on the young. And so he's like, all right, old man's ready to go. So sure enough, Hajime, they start, go back together. Young guy hits the old guy again. And the old, both old guys are like, oh, man, buddy, what are you doing? So the old sensei turns to the older guy and he says, okay. Grabs him again, punches him between the nose, right? Puts him on the nose. The third time that this happens, that young man's nose opened up like a faucet. And his white gi turned red pretty quick. Humility has the way, life is a way of grinding humility into you. Gentleness is an expression of God's sovereign strength. So when we are gentle, it means that we are power under control. We are, we are exhibiting meekness. 
This is important for us, not just in our external relationships to our, to our marriages, but also with each other. If we're going to walk in unity with Christ, we've got to remember that our, our spouse is a member of the body too. And we've got to treat them the same way that we treat other, other of God's children. Meekness is an incredible gift that God's given us. It's required in marriage. It's required in our relationships. That's how Jesus looks at us. If we're going to take the mind of Christ, that's, ex- that's explained in Philippians chapter 2, we've got to remember that, the mo- that most of the time, God does not speak with a thunderous earthquake or with a violent wind, but in a still, small voice. My encouragement to you in regard to gentleness is in your relationship with each other, the most powerful influence that you have on your spouse is a godly life. The most powerful testimony that you have to your community is to live a godly life. Meekness does not mean that you are weak, that you are small, or that you are um, somehow less valuable. It means that you understand what your value is. Then he goes on to talk about patience. He uses patience as an example. This comes from a Greek word which means forbearance, long-suffering, slowness in avenging wrongs. I love that definition. Patience is slowness in avenging wrongs. It's the supernatural ability to trust the will of God. Patience is more than just a virtue. Patience is a superpower. Patience is, um, is the supernatural ability to hear God's voice and to rest in His strength. There are, there are people that, 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 that you watch, there are older saints who have seen God do incredible things in their lives. And what's astounding is that they are, they are hit with all kinds of adversity. Randy Jeffers is a great example of this. All, the guy has had cancer I don't know how many times. Broken back, broken legs, broken knees. He's, he's, he's in a walker. and his, You ask him, Randy, how you doing? Even to this day, he is struggling. And his response is, it's all good. God's got this. For whatever reason, for whatever reason, I've got this, I've got this issue. Patience is the ability to be able to wait and to rest, to feed on God's faithfulness in the moment of distress. It's common for people to be anxious and to to find resolution to a problem. We want to know what the answer is, right? We don't pray. Typically, we don't pray for understanding in the moment. We pray for a solution to a problem. God, will you solve this problem for me? God, I have this issue. Will you answer this question? Instead of focusing on being in His presence first. Philippians 4 tells us to not be anxious, but instead rest in God's presence. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition. Petition means to request an audience from a noble. Just to be in His presence, it changes our perspective so that with thanksgiving, we make our request known to God. James tells us that patience comes from going through trials. It's the eternal fruit of trust. How can a person be content while their loved one is struggling? Because they have learned patience. How can a person walk without fear when their life is uncertain? Because they have learned patience. Paul knows that the only way that the relationships in the Ephesian church are going to last is if the people know how to have patience with each other. They've got to learn to see each other with a long game in mind. Think about how Jesus treats every single one of us. That we are dealing with, seems like one struggle after another. One challenge after another. One failure after another. And yet, He is patient. 
He is just as patient with us now as He was before we knew Him, before we had a relationship with Him, because God is not in a hurry. Patience comes from that mindset. The reason why Jesus was not anxious about what was going to happen was because He rested in what the Father's will was. And we have the opportunity to exude that as well. He says that they should bear uh, one another in love. It comes from the Greek phrase that means to hold up, to hold one, to hold uh, one's self erect and firm, to sustain, to bear, to endure. In other parts of the Bible, it's used by Jesus to describe his relationship with his disciples when they're not fully committed to him yet. He says, "How long do I have to bear you?" This bearing one another is the only is only possible in a unified agape love, the same love that God has. Uh, for us and is motivated by an eternal mindset. Being able to endure someone on their road to maturity in Christ requires a supernatural strength and creates an expectation of teamwork within the church. Imagine if we had the idea that the default wasn't me against someone else or me manipulating somebody else. Imagine the default was we're in this together. So when someone has a surgery or whenever somebody has a family issue happen or whenever somebody has a child or whenever some, some issue comes up, that the, that the expectation is not, I need to manipulate other people to do what they need to do. We have the mindset that we are in this together. Just like the old phrase that many hands make light work. We are called to jointly support each other. It may seem like a small thing or a, 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 a non-important thing to do things like a meal train. That's humongous. It may not be big for you because you can go home and make your dinner. But it's a big deal for someone who doesn't have that ability. Or, or just the simple thing of making a meal is a, is a heavy lift for them. We have, we, have the, we have such an incredible gift right now. As of, well, as of yesterday, um, we had 17 ladies who were pregnant with children. Now it's 16. We had a baby born yesterday. We have an incredible opportunity to be able to love on families, to show them, to bear each other's burdens, to, to build each other up. This is an important part of what we do because community is where we find the, the margin to be able to see God. He moves on and he says, Be diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This implies that unity is not something that comes without, intentionally, without intentionality or effort. It's got to be pursued and worked towards. When he says, be diligent to keep, that can be translated to describe the work of a watchman on the wall of a city. Think about the job of a person who's on patrol. You have the wall around the city, protecting the city from, uh, from people who would come attack it and try to threaten the way of life of the people that live there. They're not just going to put anybody up on the wall. They're going to put someone up there who knows what to do. They know where to go to sound the alarm. They know how to, to, to get everybody together. They know where all the defenses need to be. They know what, what is in place and out of place. When he says, be diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, he's saying, know what is godly and what is not godly. Be a watchman for your community. Be someone who is, who is intentionally defensive. And I'm not saying defensive in insecurity, but you are someone who looks for ways to find places where the enemy or where sinfulness is compromising the unity of the community. That means that when, you, when, when your loved one, when your friend is not part of community, you start to see them withdrawing. 
you have a responsibility to go talk to that person and lovingly say, hey, I missed you. I missed you at life group. I missed you at Sunday school. You seem like you've been distant. What, how, let's go to coffee. Or if you see someone who is intentionally living a life that is not consistent with, with, with what God's Word t- says, we have the responsibility to lovingly go get that person. Like what Paul tells us in Galatians 6, he says, you who are spiritual, go get that person in a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness. That doesn't mean that we go to manipulate them and to, to, to bend their arm, but it means that we take, the ini- we take the effort to go try to restore them to the community, and we know what to look for. One of the things that I have found that is um, a regular occurrence for me as a pastor is that um, ignorance of God's Word is something that is an epidemic in our generation. People don't know what God's Word says, and so they don't know what to look for. They don't know what godly community looks like because they honestly don't have a close relationship with the Lord, and so they don't have a close relationship with His people. We're called to be watchmen for our fellow believers because of the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That's a community responsibility. But now look at this. Look at these last couple of verses. In verse 4, he goes on, uh, and he challenges, um, he challenges them to, to think about things correctly. He says, There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, of all uh, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, there's, there's a lot to go through here, but we're, we're not going to spend a ton of time digging into this. But it's important for us to be able to see this. One of the tactics of the enemy is to create factions, to divide people, us and them. And um, the reformations that happened in the 16th century are um, a testament to God defending his community. But one of the unintentional byproducts of that is that we have fragmented ourselves from other, other believers. And Paul's point here is that there is one faith, there is one Lord, and there is one purpose for all of us. Let's look at this. He starts off by saying that there is one body and one spirit that all believers belong to. One body implies that there is, there is only one family of God. If we agree on the essentials, that is the Bible is God's truth, it's His inspired word, that Jesus is God, that man is separated from God because of our sin, that Jesus lived perfectly, that He died and He was resurrected on the third day, and the confession of Him is all that's required of salvation. Faith is all that's required of salvation. If those are the essentials and we agree on those, we can be in fellowship. If you worship a different way than I do, that's not an essential. I'm going to let you do that. I'm still going to consider you my brother. If you, if you gather differently, if you dress differently, I guarantee you that there's believers in Africa that worship differently than we worship. That there are believers in China that worship differently than we worship. Same thing in Europe. There is a unified one body. There is one church. There is not multiple churches. This is, this is uh, one of the reasons why false religions like Mormonism are so dangerous because they undermine, they violate one of the core principles that Jesus is God. They don't believe that Jesus is God. They believe that Jesus was a created being. So they are not part of the body. He says that we are one spirit. What this means is that that we are all directed by the same Holy Spirit. God doesn't contradict Himself. He's going to confirm Himself through His Word and through biblical counsel. One of the things that I have loved about being in in ministry in the young adult community is that we have people from all different walks of life, from all different denominations, and I've gotten to know different pastors from different traditions. 
And what's astounding to me is that when we walk into the room, even though our worship may look different, even though our friendships may look different, our dress may look different, when we come together, we immediately know that we're family. Because there is one Spirit. This is also why, why we know that whenever there is something that is against the, that one Spirit, that those who are authentic believers, will, they will know that something is up. He said that we've been called in one hope, by one Lord, into one faith, in one baptism. One hope means that there is no other path to godliness except through Jesus. One Lord means that there is only one God who is the ultimate authority over creation. One faith means that God has given us one option for salvation, and that's through Jesus. One baptism means that there is only one expression of obedience and confession to be a part of God's family. One of the things that was an early dispute in the, um, in the, in the first church, in the early church, and also even today, is that there's this idea that there are two, there are, there are essentially two phases to salvation. That you have, the, you have the confession of Jesus that leads to primary salvation, and that you're not truly a child of God until you have been baptized by the Spirit. This is what Paul's talking about here. He said there is one baptism, there is one confession, there is one way to know God, there's one way to express that. What, what was happening in the early church, and happens today in some circles, is that they look at, oh, well, you're not truly a child of God until you are Spirit-filled. In other words, you express certain characteristics, certain animations, that make it apparent that you're a believer. But God's Word doesn't say anything about those being the things that dictate us being children of God. What he's saying here is that baptism, which is the expression of belief in Christ, the public expression, means that we are um, that we're his family. There's a whole other lesson there about baptism. We probably should look into one day. He goes on to say that we belong to one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. His point here is that there's not a difference uh, in branches of orthodoxy. Those who are in Christ are united through the Holy Spirit into one faith through one confession. When he talks about the Father having authority over all and in all, what he means is that God is intimately involved in our lives. One of the, one of the uh, challenges that the enemy likes to throw in our faces is that God is separate from us, that He's distant from us. But His Word tells us over and over again that He is present in our lives. One of my buddies said one time, he said, it's like God is always in the action. He is. So consider this theological idea. So to be, to be, um, to be in sin means to be separated from God, Right? So James tells us that God is the source of everything that's good. He is the source of all life and light. John 1. So to be separate from God means to be dead. For the wages of sin is death, right? So that means, so that leads us to a question. When God tells Adam and Eve when they eat the fruit that they're going to die, when they ate the fruit, why didn't they die physically? Unless God gave them grace in the expression of time, to repent. That God held them, held, them, held back the consequence of sin for a long enough time for them to come back into a reconciled relationship with Him. What, he, what He's saying here is that for God to be in all and through all and above all means that God is actively in our lives controlling the weight and the consequence of sin. The challenge is that when we think about 
that concept, we are uh, we're ignorant in a lot of ways of how God is preserving us in the moment. It's like a parent guarding their child from danger, and the child has no clue what's happening. We saw this last night. Some of the little ones were walking around the fire, and mom and dad or somebody was standing between them and the fire, right? Making sure they didn't fall in the fire. That kid had no clue, no idea what mom and dad was doing. They were just exploring. This is a picture of what God does for us, that he protects us from the consequences of our sin long enough to where we will come into relationship with him. And that continues even as we're his children. So he reveals the sinfulness around us and we go, oh my goodness, daddy, I need you. And he comes in and he, and he offers some instruction. We go a little bit more. We discover more danger, more mistakes that we've made. Daddy, I need you. And he, and he provides more instruction. God has always been in the action. So we've been given a responsibility. A responsibility not just to know that God is sovereignly watching over us, that God is sovereignly protecting us, protecting us from the consequences of our sin, but He's given us this, this divine directive, this godly directive to pursue unity, to make conscious decisions, to build relationships with each other. In the confidence that we have in Him, as we are humble and gentle and patient, as we pursue this unity, we're fighting for each other. One of the things that, is, um, that has been profound about what God has taught me in my life is that I, I, you guys probably know the term quiet time, right? So you get up in the morning, you read your Bible, it's called a quiet time. It's part of our Christian vernacular. But one of the things that I've realized is that that's the wrong term for my time with the Lord. You probably have things in your life that you've struggled with for a very long time. I know that I do. And I come to the Lord for the 10 millionth time and I confess something that I've done wrong, that I've, that I've, that I've gotten caught in. And years ago, he gave me a picture that I will never forget. Imagine yourself on an old-fashioned battle line that the Romans used to have. It's called a phalanx. All of the soldiers would lock their shields together, right? But the phalanx was only as strong as each individual soldier's training. If you, if you settle in on, on your, your victories of the past, your accomplishments of the past, you get lazy in your training, you start taking for granted your success and your ability to be in the line, what happens is you make mistakes. The attacks of the enemy will come. Resistance will come. And what happens is we get, if we get lazy in our training, we get hurt on the battlefield. Now, sometimes those hurts will heal and no one will know. But many times those hurts will cut deep and we will carry a, a physical or a, a, an obvious symbol of that in our life for the rest of our days. A limp, a broken relationship, broken friendship, a broken marriage, um, trauma that goes unhealed. But here's the picture. You're lazy in your training, and you get hurt in battle. So you're on the ground. Now everybody around you, your spouse is now exposed because you're not there to protect them anymore. The shield and the phalanx would protect the person next to you, not you. So immediately the person next to you is exposed. And you're on the ground and you're, you're, you're killing yourself. You're beating yourself up about all the ways that you messed up. I can't believe I did this. I can't believe I did this. Oh, this, this, this. And you're living in all this hypothetical world. And the enemy is just over you. Telling you, you're worthless. You're never going to get this right. Here we are again. How many times you got to bring this to God? God doesn't want to talk about this anymore. He's really done with you. Meanwhile, the general is standing behind us with one, one expectation of us 
that we would fail. And he calls to us and he says, get up. You're in danger on the ground. Get up. Get up. It's okay. Get up. I've been here the whole time. One of the things that I have learned is that my time with the Lord is not unintentional throwaway time. It's not just a box to check. I'm training my heart. This is heart training. I'm intentionally fighting for my community when I spend time in His Word. I'm intentionally fighting for my wife when I spend time in His Word. I'm fighting for my children when I spend time in His Word. I'm fighting for my friends. Because when the enemy comes at the gate, I want to make sure that I am equipped for what he brings. If I don't spend time knowing and training how to use the tools that God's given me, what happens is that I am not ready for that conflict. I'm not ready to build my community, both in response and also thinking about the future. When a general comes to a battle, he has a plan. That goes from the general all the way down to the lowest soldier. They know what the plan is. And if we never spend time to go to the briefing, we're not going to know what to do. So, here's the question for your car today. How is your family culture diligent to keep the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace? How do you intentionally pursue peace? How do you, how do you intentionally, let me back up. How do you intentionally pursue unity in the body of Christ? Do you have rules in how you talk about people? Do you make sure that your, that your words are edifying? That they are building others up? Whenever you talk about people that are in your life, whether it's in your life group or whether it's in your friend group or your family, if they're believers, do you, do you talk about them in a way that would be honoring to the Lord? What are the rules that you've established for your family? Proverbs 18.21 has a very simple lesson for us. He says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. How are we diligently and intentionally cultivating a mindset towards unity in our families? Who carries if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Married Now What podcast is a ministry of Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and is meant to be a resource for in-depth Bible study for couples striving to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.